0: All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to uh, our study on church history, we uh, pray that you would guide us through it. It is the story that you have written from the time in the beginning until now that shows your faithfulness and that shows your redemptive plan to raise up a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And so as we come to our study in church history, we need to ask the question first. Well, first, let me show you uh, these books. Uh, this is this, these two and a couple others that are more uh, seminary oriented. This is a great book if you're just looking for one to like read. I know it's big, um, with 500 pages, but it's called Church History in Plain Language. Bruce Shelley, strongly recommended. Um, reads more like a story. It's really good. Great, great thing to have at home and this is a good one this one actually appealed to me quite a bit in seminary and used it a bunch uh, Introduction to History of Christianity and it's um, edited by Tim Dowley it's kind of a collection and why it's so good is that, well, it came with a CD-ROM which I don't even know if that's a thing anymore but it has pictures so lots of them so I love it this is what kept me through church history because I would just look at that while I was listening to the lectures so Pretty standard. All right, so why do we study church history? What's important? Um, well, what do you think? Why should we study church history? Right. I think um, it shows us, Yeah, it shows us the faithfulness of God. God is faithful in the Scriptures. We know that. We see that. But He continues to be faithful throughout the rest of history, he was faithful from Genesis all the way until now. And I think that studying history shows us that. I think um, I love the Charles Spurgeon quote, and I actually have it quoted here. It says, I find it odd that he who thinks so highly of what the Holy Spirit teaches him thinks so little of what the Holy Spirit teaches others also. And he was quoting that as a, as a way to, for his students to, encouraging them to read commentaries, biblical commentaries, which biblical commentaries are just what? They're a history of how men and women have looked at the scriptures in the past. They've been written since the beginning of scripture. And so um, we read them because we're concerned about the way the Holy Spirit is working in the past as well. The Holy Spirit is here now. The Holy Spirit was there then. It's the same Holy Spirit. We're the only ones that have changed. And so it speaks to us now the way it spoke to them then. And I think that's important for us to see. Um, And it it also helps us to understand that uh, men and women think the same way today as they did back then. Even though we have a different cultural context, we apply both our sinfulness... And the richness of scripture to the culture in very similar ways. And I think that's uh, helpful for us to study history in that regard. Anything else? What's it going to protect us from? Errors. Errors. Yeah, it protects us from errors. You said new errors. Are there any new errors?
1: You haven't heard anybody else preach about it, you can't find it in
2: church history, just call yourself a heretic. Yeah,
0: that's it. right. Yes. <laughs> any new teachings are heresy. Yes, absolutely. And uh, also, uh, any new heresies, new heresies are not new heresies. They are ones that have been taught before, um, they've had the paint stripped off of them and they've been repainted, but they are still heresy and it's just and i think we'll see that as we go through some of the old struggles that the church had we're going to see them as very much similar to our own day and time and to some of the heresies that we hear preached and taught in the church today so i think it's important for us to see where we've come from how the church dealt with it then and how we're dealing with it now and and just to be fair and just to be sure church history is just that it's history. It's a factual account of history. In no way does the church's history um, teach us doctrine the way that Scripture teaches us doctrine. And wh- what I mean by that is that sometimes you'll hear someone, you'll hear someone make a, a, you know, take a position, and the way that they'll back their position up is by going to church history in order to do that. That's fine as long as you can do it with Scripture as well. Because what we're going to see is that there were some interesting beliefs in church history, and even from those that we call, uh, quote-unquote, fathers of the faith, that some of them had some odd leanings. They had some very good leanings, some very helpful things, but they also had some very odd ways about them. And again, that's not unlike ourselves. Go, go ahead. No, I don't
1: want to... Point out. This goes right along with what you're saying. Is that at times in our community and broadly in America, there are movements, and I won't name them, but that say we we are just trying to start over with a clean slate and have New Testament Christianity. Right. So they say we're going to go back to the New Testament. And, but then, whatever, and you're saying, well, that sounds a lot like Pelagianism, like completely works based faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, well, that, I don't know what you're talking about there, but we're just trying to do what we see in the Bible. Right. And so rejecting church history and yet trying to go to the New Testament as their guide is, is a real prideful thing. It sounds great though, but it's very prideful. It rejects the, I don't even understand what you guys are getting at because if you look at some of the movements that have started in America. A lot of them with strong personalities. They've had some sort of plea like that, mm-hmm. like, "Oh, well, the church right now is corrupt. We just need to go back and do it like they did in the New Testament." And let me explain to you what that is. Well, that sounds like Pelagianism from the second
0: century. Right. Oh, I don't know anything about that. Right.
1: I'm just. No, they
0: they, they want to. Well, it's it's the cult of the news still, right? It's uh, I'm going to just you see this a lot. We want our 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 churches a New Testament church. Well, all churches are New Testament churches uh, by definition. Uh, we're not trying to. There's nothing to be discovered about the church in the New Testament that hasn't been. Right. You haven't un, you know you haven't uncovered a stone that is going to unlock the key to you having a, a mega church now or anything like that. There's no there's nothing secret to be had. And so, and you're right, people will want to say something like, well, we're just a New Testament church because that they think that that makes them somehow immune to everything it does. Yeah. You, you
1: should be aware that they're recycling something from yes. church history. Absolutely. That's why, I guess my point is, that's why it matters because I've been asked that too. Like, why do you think church history even matters? I mean, yeah. so I can understand. Because there are people with good intentions who have started terrible movements. Yep. And I mean that sincerely. People that are going to be in heaven with us that have taught things like dispensationalism, that have had all kinds of people scared from wacky end-time scenarios and stuff, mm-hmm. they didn't do that to trip people up. They did that because they didn't know anything about church history. Right. Yeah, they, so they had a lot of pride in their own understanding and didn't say, I don't need to know what Spurgeon or anybody else thought about that. That's good. And they paid the really tragic... Play.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Todd, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna
2: kinda I'm not talking to kind of, I anybody mean, before, but expand on that idea of uh, going back to the old testament. And that was or going back to uh, the, the New Testament early times just as the church after Acts, and that was kind of the mantra of the church that I came out of. You know, we are are an Acts two church. Acts right. two is the of the Bible. You know, it was, when it was preached for the first time, heard for the first time, believed for the first time. And that was kind of just the whole mantra of the of teaching. And I had kind of forgotten that. And I was kind of berated by a woman at a restaurant not too long ago. And, you know, I was taught, trying to talk to her kindly and, and uh, brought up the fact that the Church of Christ denomination didn't say that word. Mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. had not been around for very long. And she quickly corrected me and said, Oh, yes, it has. It was formed in Acts. And so, uh, mm. oh, okay.
0: no, I forgot, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was kind of yeah, yeah. the whole idea of being a, an axe to church, again, it's, it's kind of what Paul is warning against in First Timothy, is it not? Like this idea of genealogies and myths and uh, vain discussions. I mean, we're all Acts Two churches. We all have the apostles to their shoulders that we're standing on. I mean, I, it's it's a, again, it's a distinction in order to separate ourselves from other people in a bad way. Uh, we're the only churches, really. What they should be saying, even though they don't want to say that, they won't. They, they think that's impolite, but somehow saying an Acts Two church is polite, which I, I see them is one of the same.
1: The bigger one is the landmark Baptist movement too. Yeah, landmarkism and is another same it's exactly. Exactly. It's way for some right now yeah. in Kentucky. That that is almost a there have always been people since the time of the Apostles who believed and did exactly what we are doing today. Mm. Mm. So there's been zero growth in understanding, n- yeah. none of that. They're okay with that, but they trace their roots almost magically back to that, and it becomes, they're willing to divide with everybody else in the world over that, and because of that, they're perishing, their church is on.
0: Yeah, go ahead, Dave.
3: Um, Just a a different view of church history, it's kind of like um, your ancestry or Christian genetics, you kind of take a look at where the different ideas came from and where they went to, Uh, you see the difference you know how the church broke up um, you see you know the reform movement you see the church of England and you see where everything kind of came from you also see the rest of it you mm-hmm. know like from centuries um 100 AD to 400 AD as they were putting together the Bible you see the rest of that. everything that was all out came kind of together into a uh, a trunk, and then it started to split up again yeah. with uh, the Coptics and the Orthodox and the Roman Church.
0: Yeah, that's good. I think it, it helps us to see, you know, like you said, the roots of where we're at. Um, because we don't understand who we are unless we really understand where we came from. And I, and I think you can get that. You can definitely get that from Scripture. Scripture can definitely teach us that in its entirety. And that's fine. But I think. It's important for us to understand church history to see how that has played itself out throughout the history of the church, both good and bad. Um, and I, Because in, in the church, we have, we have the, the church going towards or to Europe and to Africa and to, now to the Americas, and that's all a good thing, right? And doctrine being spread and the, and the faithfulness of Scripture. But then we also have Christians doing bad things. Throughout our history You know we think of the crusades And we think of, of slavery And some of these other things that have gone on And so I think it's important for us Because we want Well there's two things that happen We want to outline the only good things And then we also get the bad things held against us Well neither is really helpful um, we, You know when someone says Well the church condones uh, Well condoned the crusades Back a thousand years ago I'm like Okay that's not now. Let's talk about the scriptures. Let's talk about where we're going. And so, uh, it's not helpful for us to lean on those things or to argue with those things because that's you know that's not us today. And I think it's a, I think you know it's the same thing. The argument now that people will want to bring out is the way that the Catholic Church has handled um, some of the indiscretions in the priesthood concerning you know the the accusations against priests and that sort of thing that have gone on Um, again that's not a picture of what the church is about or what the church teaches that's just a section of the church that has done a particular thing Um, it doesn't make us that doesn't become our identity and so in in both ways we need to look at that both the good and the bad and I think it helps us to see that I think even when we start looking at Presbyterian history um we're going to see that same thing play itself out. Uh, where you have, uh, you know, back when slavery was being abolished, you have part of the Presbyterian church that wanted to retain slavery. But who were the main forerunners against slavery? The pastors. You know, who, who were the main forerunners against the Crusades? It was the, the people who the Christians of the time. And so all these bad things that went on in history, you have the church also speaking out against it. Even though there's part of the church that's doing it, sure, you have the church speaking out against it. And I think that helps us to be informed as well because people will use that against us all the time. And I think that's just wrong. Um,
3: also, you can kind of take a look to um, – you take a look at uh, the reforms and we have the Arminian. And mm-hmm. we're essentially for first- the Absolutely. Uh, we're much closer to those guys. even though the argument is done, but we both understand the basis of the argument versus uh, a westland right. It might be a second or third. Person.
0: Yeah, we. Yeah, I think it's good too to see where our doctrinal divides are linked and. I think it shows us that in the church we really have more in common than we do in difference, and, and that's where we should focus our attention. Not to say that it's not good to to argue those distinctives, because I think it is, but there's a certain place to do that. And uh, and I think when studying a common thing like church history, we probably shouldn't be doing that as much. That's just my thought, even though I love to argue as much as the next person, I guess. But um, So turn with me to Galatians 4. verse 4 and uh, Galatians 4 4 it says this but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of woman born under the law to redeem those who were born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons Galatians 4 4 Let's look at Mark 1.15 real quick. Keep in your mind that idea of the fullness of time. Mark 1.15. It says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, the time is fulfilled. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. What are we to, to say about this? You see this, uh, well, in, in First Timothy today, what did it say? That uh, the ransom was paid uh, and the testimony was full. The, the, the same idea, the truth, the truth there. And so what's going on there? Well, in my mind... That means that the time had come, it's almost like the table is set for the Messiah to come. What do we mean by that? Well, let's look at the historical context in which Jesus Christ came into this world. He came into a world in which um, Alexander the Great, you guys are familiar with the name, Alexander the Great kind of conquered a lot of the known world up until he died, which was... um, Was it uh, 323 B.C. is when he died? And so he basically conquered from Greece and uh, lower Europe, northern Africa, Asia Minor, all the way through uh, Persia to northern India. That's a long way for 323 B.C. Um, And what did he do in that conquering? Well, the time is known as the Hellenistic period, which is basically a Greek thing. Not only did he uh, conquer and make those nations part of Greece, but he also brought his language and his culture with him. And so that all of this known area, which was most of the civilized world, had a one common language, which was Koine Greek, and one common culture, this idea of Hellenism. doesn't mean that they lost their cultural distinctives, but they brought in This common culture So that it brought everyone around A common idea Alright And so the world that Christ was born into He was born into a world that Was largely Flavored with Hellenism Greek culture and thought But Rome At the time controlled Jerusalem Because when Alexander the Great died The Greek Greek empire slowly started eking away until finally the Roman Empire rose from its ashes. And Rome had control over Jerusalem in particular. Well, the Jewish people had been in control by the Greeks and by the Medo-Persians, by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians. And so for the Greek people, or for the Hebrew people, what do they see this as? Okay, we're done. We're, We're kind of tired of being held up We see the prophecies coming to their fulfillment. And what starts to arise during that time? Lots of people who call themselves what? The Messiah. I'm the Messiah is what they would say. The Mashiach is uh, the Hebrew word there. I'm the one who's supposed to deliver Israel from its captors and bring them into, um, into the land of the promise. And so then you see you had all these like terrorist groups rise up in Jerusalem, and they would, they would raid the Roman government. Uh, one of them was called the Zealots. We have a, one of our apostles is Simon the Zealot. They would literally make raids on Roman soldiers, and Rome would answer in vigor, and that's where you get a lot of the crucifixions that would go on in that time in Jerusalem. And as far as Rome is concerned, Rome had a common government. Through all of that land. And so why is that a good thing for for that time? Well, Greek was the culture, but Rome was the government. And the Roman Empire, the way that they conquered was they came in and said, Okay, this is Rome, but you be you. You keep being Indian or North African or whatever you are. Keep your distinctives, but we're going to control the government here. That was good for them because what did that mean? Well, if you walked along the road... From Jerusalem to India, it was largely safe. There were Roman centuries all over the place. It was a safe place to travel. Paul could travel all over the known world in relative safety. That's a good time for the church to begin. And so I think when it's when Paul is writing the fullness of time, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, I believe, and a lot of a lot of Christian scholars believe, that the world was, was ripe. For the Messiah to come. Well, not only that, uh, I think also the fullness of time means that the prophetic timing was there as well. Uh, I heard John MacArthur preach a great sermon recently um, on Daniel chapter 9 and the the prophecy of the 70 times 7 weeks and all that stuff. Um, I'm not qualified or prepared to do that, but let me encourage you to listen to his sermon. I thought it was very good. And how the prophecies in Daniel and all this line up perfectly with the birth of Jesus the Messiah. So the prophecies of scripture are being fulfilled as well. So the fullness of time, the fullness of the scriptures, everything is right then for the coming of the Lord. And so Jesus lives and dies. Uh, That's a very full statement. Um, But that's what happens. He appoints these men to train and lead the church. These are the apostles. Remember, there were 12 apostles. One of them was replaced. Uh, And what was their task? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This was their task. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They are to go out into the earth and be witnesses for Christ, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was Jesus' words in his ministry, repent and believe in Jesus Christ, in in me? And what was the words of the disciples, repent and believe in Jesus Christ the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. Did they do that? Yes, what proof do we have? The Acts of the Apostles? That's why it's called that. Um, what was their fate? They were all martyred, except for John, who likely lived the longest, who probably lived up until 95 AD. is what it's thought, but he lived in exile was interesting story I read about John that he was thought to have survived the, uh, the killing way called the brazen bull which was where they put a, a guy inside of a, a bronze bull and filled it with oil and then burned it I don't know how he survived that but he's supposed to have survived that and then they sent him to Patmos where he was exiled and that's where he wrote the book of uh, Revelation uh, but the other twelve disciples were all murdered Interestingly enough, guess where they were martyred? Everywhere from Rome, furthest west, to northern India, as far east as the Roman Empire went. To the very ends of the earth, they found these 12 men preaching the gospel, and they killed them for it. It's pretty incredible to me. I mean, I think we could teach a whole class on just just that. Um, But then there's Paul. As well. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. He was brought up, and we, we recently went through that as we uh, introduced the book of 1 Timothy. Paul is famous for his three missionary journeys. And what did he do on these missionary journeys? He planted churches, he raised up men and women to disciple others who would then disciple others. And so he began all these churches. His last major trip was to Rome, where he was a prisoner. And uh, remember, he appealed to Caesar, and they were taking him to Caesar, and you get some of that in Acts. And what's the last bit that we see in the book of Acts? He's there in prison, and he's sharing the gospel openly with people, and he got to do that for several years before he was executed under the emperor Nero. And so (coughs) Acts takes us up to around 62 to 64 A.D., Um, and so by this time, you have many churches that are planted. A good portion of the New Testament is written down. 64 A.D. is when the temple in Jerusalem is finally finished, and this is a a very important point in, Jeru- in Jerusalem's history because remember the temple is a very central issue to the Jewish people. Uh, but the temple's finished, and so what happens? Well, all the people that were used to build the temple, this is hundreds of people, are now out of work. You have a Roman government that is oppressing the people, or at least controlling the people with a heavy hand. So poverty is on the rise, and so what do you expect to happen? Eventually the Jewish people are going to say, hey, we think you're doing a bad job. You should get out of here, except they're going to say that with swords and spears. And so in 66 AD, you have what's called the Great Revolt, where the Jewish people raise up against Rome... Um, If you're a small nation who uh, has largely been in captivity its whole existence, you probably shouldn't raise up against the strongest nation in the world. And they learned that. Uh, But the reason that they did that is because Christians and Jews alike were being made to offer sacrifice to Caesar. Do Christians have problems with this? They should, yes. Do Jews have problems with this? Yes, they should. But what's interesting is that Christians and Jews, well, at least the Jews, hated the Christians as well. And so it's during this time in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas that Christians are being persecuted by the Jews. And we saw this even in the book of Acts with Paul, even. Paul was converted, but the Jewish leaders continued to persecute Christians. Uh, this was the first major persecution in the church, really, this, by, by the Jewish leadership Uh, persecuting the Christians and so the Christians are being held down by Rome by Jews as well until 70 AD um, which uh, the general Titus comes in to Jerusalem and he sacks the city of Jerusalem and he literally burns everything to the ground remember Jesus talked about that not one stone would remain on another I think Matthew 24 is a great prophecy that Jesus uh, is prophesying concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and um So uh, Rome comes in and sacks them. And then what's interesting here at this time, this is Christians go one direction. They go to the other side of the Jordan as they flee Jerusalem, which is what Jesus told them to do in Matthew 24. And then the Jews go someplace else. And so this represents a, a historic break for them. And then there's a council in 90 A.D. where the Jewish Jewish people officially condemn Christians and ban them from the synagogue. Uh, And this 90 AD to around 95 AD is where we have the last of the scriptures being written down. The book of Revelation is written then. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are probably written then. And so that interestingly enough is kind of when the canon becomes closed as well. And so this (coughs) I thought it was good for us to go ahead and Start with Jesus and end right at the end of the New Testament because that's again, like like Dave said, we need to understand the roots of where the the first non-scriptural people are going to come into the church and begin to lead the church. Because these first men and women who lead the church, who are they discipled by? The apostles. They're the ones that are going to lead the church. You know, we have we're going to have some wrong, uh, names like. Clement and like uh, Tertullian and some of these others that came in, they were they were uh, led by John and by Peter. And so they have a lot to tell us as well. They're not, again, they're not authoritative the way that Peter and John are, but they do have a lot to instruct us on and I'm looking forward to to learning more about them as we go. So any questions about that? I just wanted to kind of outline, a basic history of kind of how the church began. Um, a historical outline more so. Go ahead. Question?
3: Oh, just, just a note. Um, with, you mentioned about the uh, fall of Jerusalem mm-hmm. and uh, Jews went into Jerusalem and they were what was interesting there, would they... Did was the common um, military wisdom. Everybody got together and went to the stronghold. And the Christians didn't do that, like you mentioned. They went to the hills, mm-hmm. like Jesus told them to. But you can get on the um, internet with Josephus, and he describes everything that's occurring during the fall of Jerusalem. It's really interesting. yeah, Because Josephus was a Jew, but he was an adche to the Romans. So he got to see things happening from both internal to the city and external to the city, and he describes all this. So if you get bored of this summer, that's really good reading.
0: Yep, yeah, Josephus this is actually very good reading. Um, just as a warning, many non biblical scholars are trying to say he wasn't even a real thing and it's all a forgery. Of course they are, because it corroborates our own story. Um, we don't need Josephus's testimony to corroborate right our story, but it is very helpful. It's like Dave said; it's 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 like an inside view to what's going on in Jerusalem. It was horrible. It's not a Christian perspective either. Right. He,
3: Josephus was not a Christian. He's not a Christian. He, was, he was a Roman at that day. He was a Jewish philosopher. Right. <clears throat> well, he may have even been a, a Jewish um, traitor, if you will. Right? right. Because it's very questionable how he into that position you should have been dead you should not have been yep the Romans made alliances with a lot
1: of powerful Jewish people and that was oh, yeah. part of the problem the zealots were the ones who were saying look some of our own leaders are strange bedfellows with these Roman leaders
0: you. and you saw that even with the crucifixion of Jesus yeah. um, there was definitely some, some deal making uh, going on there between the Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership which I think the Jewish leadership eventually finds out that Rome is not a friend to anybody, but Rome. Um, and they, when during the fall there, um, <coughs> and so yeah, I think it's good that we use history to help us to help us learn, and the writers of history to help us learn um, about church history. And obviously, after Acts 28, we don't have anything, ab- anything but that. And so it's important for us to re- remember that, um, both that. History is helpful for us, but it's not canon. It doesn't teach us like doctrine, like the doctrines of Scripture do. So, yeah, go ahead. I love the fall and I love
1: studying that, the of the temple. And I've got to go see, I've got some books, a couple of them, if anybody's interested in them But one of the ways that that's an effective thing to know about to share the gospel is for everybody to consider that temple's never been rebuilt. Right. There's been no sacrifice for the Jews for 2,000 years. And if you ever get a chance to talk to Jewish people about the gospel, it's actually a really helpful point. You don't have to draw some massive church history analogy except to say, where's the sacrifice for your sins? They can't sacrifice without a temple. They're still raising money to build the temple, at least a bunch of Christians are. Yep which will never happen, probably. And yet, that's a release there. Right. Yeah, there is a mosque there. It's a really effective evangelism tool, and I, I've known people that have used it um, to just simply point that out and to say, but see, here's Jesus, once and for all, making a sacrifice for sins. Good. And that's what the Jews they had to over and over and over thing, And it ought to trouble them that... Jehovah has left them without sacrifice for 2,000-something years. And that's because all that's gone. It's yea and amen in Jesus. And that's a good way to preach Jesus to the people who come from a Jewish background. Or may even actually be practicing Jews.
0: Those are harder to find. I think Jewish people and people who think that the Jewish customs still hold Bearing over our righteousness as yeah. well, which is actually a struggle in the church, yes. particularly in the Reformed church. Yeah. Um, I think that's a that's a difficult deal. So, <clears throat> good. Any questions? Any thoughts? Um, I think as we go forward and look at particular doctrines, I hope to have a lot of more uh, discussion. But I wanted to outline the just kind of where the church is going to start, and we'll look. You know, we're going to look at some particular personalities. I'm excited to look at people like. Pelagius and Augustine and uh, Clement of Rome and Tertullian and all the different ones there. Jimmy Swagger. Jimmy Swagger as well. We'll have to wait several hundred years to get to him. but uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about him. Alright, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, Lord, we're thankful for history. It's rooted in Christ Jesus. It is rooted in his righteousness alone. And the fact that he came and he died for his people. It is still evident today as his people thrive, as his people continue to grow and to share the gospel. And so Lord, we pray that we would be instructed by the history of the church. We would be encouraged. We would see your faithfulness. We would be free from the errors of the early church, that we would go forward and bring glory to you and to you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.